I'd like to begin this morning with a word of prayer before I say anything at all. Let's start with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this day, and I just thank you again for your word. I thank you for um, our musicians this morning, uh, helping us prepare our hearts for what your word has for us. I thank you, Lord, for all in this room, every soul that is present. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, truly bless us this morning with your presence in a way that is meaningful and powerful. God, I ask that you would be with me as I present this word. God, I ask that you would guide and direct in your grace. Lord, would be permeated throughout. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been doing a series on the church. Uh, specifically, my thought in doing this and Paul's thought when we thought about doing this and taking a temporary break from Luke was to really talk about what is the church all about, but also what, are we, what have we been about and what ought we to be about. I think that uh, we've kind of hit on some things about who we are, what we believe, what direction we're headed, maybe some guiding principles. The sermons so far that we've talked about, uh, the first one was Acts 2.42, uh, was just kind of an introduction. That was the very first moment of the church, and uh, we get to hear about what they were devoted to. The second one was about preaching. The third was about worship and music. The fourth and the fifth were about fellowship, not only just that fellowship, the unity that we have in Christ, but also the roles that we play. These are all online. The sermon today is a tough one. Um, I'm going to be talking to you today about something that uh, I know, even before I say it, I know that there's a great potential for a couple of things to happen, and I'm going to talk about the, the potential for how this could go wrong in just a moment. Um, but the topic of today is church discipline, okay? Um, church discipline. For some of you, you're going to go, uh, what is that? I don't even know what you're talking about, right? Um, this is going to be the focus of today's passage. Um, I believe that church discipline is a mark of a healthy, godly, true church. In fact, during the Reformation time period, the Protestants held that there were three marks of a healthy church. Uh, what they held as the three marks of a healthy church were uh, preaching, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline was the third one that they held on to as a right mark of a healthy church. I think there's a lot of other ones that we could throw in there, but this has been an important one for a long time. Uh, there's four challenges I'm going to talk to you about today. There's four challenges with this, okay? Then I'm going to talk about the four biblical steps that I believe that were to follow, while I'm talking about those four steps, there's three purposes that are going to kind of be blended in with the steps, and then I have some afterthoughts afterwards, okay? So let's start with the challenges. The first challenge, I think, in fact, uh, before I share these challenges, I want to say that this has spurred me on just, I found myself last night, I found myself yesterday just taking moments where I just was repeatedly praying, Lord, just fill me with grace as I present these things. Lord, help me to be firm on what your word says, but don't, don't let people miss the good news of the gospel and your grace that is permeated throughout this. Um, it's prompted a real dependence on God as I address this topic. Lord, help me to not go awry. That's the first challenge. Church discipline has been done wrong, <laughs> right? It's been done very wrong. It's been done wrong by pastors. It's been done wrong by churches. It's been done wrong 
by individuals. It's been done wrong by entire denominations. In fact, it's also been wrong by whole chunks of church history. Okay? So I recognize that it's been done wrong. In fact, I recognize the fact that in addition to a few people in here going, I don't even know what you're talking about, there's others in here going, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's terrible. And so we need to talk about that. Um, one of the, the key reasons why I'm bringing this up is because this has been a mark of this church that we've held on to. Um, this is one of those things that I cautiously approach. But it's one of those things that I say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm, your word says to do this. So help us to do this. And I haven't had a whole big number of positive examples to follow. Fortunately, I've had a few. Some of the churches I've been at have done this really well and done it right and done it biblically. But I'm going to be honest, outside of that, there's not a lot of great examples to look to to follow. And so there's been a need to depend on your word, Lord. How do you say to do these things? So, But challenge number one, it's been done wrong. And so I would ask you in that challenge, regardless of what your opinion of it is, whether it's, I don't even know what you're talking about, or this sounds terrible. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, it sounds terrible. Um, and some of you are like, I know what you're talking about, and I, but you have this view of it. That could be wrong. Could you at least say, start off by, I may be looking at this incorrectly. Okay? And let's talk about it. The second challenge, I think, um, church discipline, even when, even when done right, has been maligned, or I could say slandered. Um, there have been people, not always, not always, but sometimes the recipients, the ones that are on the receiving end, what we would think of as the receiving end of church discipline, walk away and how they speak about how it went down might not properly represent the church and what they were attempting to do, okay? I know that my students at school do this to me all the time. <laughs> I'll be like, hey, could you put your phone away, you know? And they won't. And then I'll say, hey, I asked you to put your phone away, and they won't. And then I'll say, you know, if you don't put your phone away, I'm going to have to write you up. And they go, you didn't even warn me. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's inaccurate. What's actually played out was inaccurate to what I was. And then, then they'll, they'll talk to their friend. You wouldn't believe Mr. Harmless wrote me up for my phone. He didn't even warn me. It's not true. Um, which is why I usually make a point of saying it extremely loudly when I warn them. Usually I'll start at the beginning of every class. This is your warning about the phone. Actually, this year I did it the first day of school. I said, this is your warning about the phone. I'm not going to do it again the rest of the year. You cannot say you're not getting a warning. Here it is right now. Do I need to record it for you? Um, anyway. Um, sometimes it's outright slander that is spoken of about a church. I'm going to be honest with you, we've had that happen here at Edgewood. Um, times where we've had to walk through these things with people, and, 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 and it's, it's hard because your heart is broken over what's going on, and you know the person is completely missing what you're attempting to do. And how they go out and pro profess what's happening misses where your heart is at. I think a lot of you have experienced this even with disciplining your own children. There's been times where you've had to discipline, and it's out of genuine, you weren't mad, you weren't frustrated, you're just out of genuine love for the child. You had to do something or take away something, and the kid walks out of the room and says, you hate me, and you're like, that's, 
And you know, that's not what it is at all. Sometimes it's misunderstood by others who are not fully invested in the church. They see it happening from a distance, and they're not really a part of what's going on and how that plays out. I think in our culture as well, sin is not your business. Although that particular problem kind of fades more and more because I do feel like more and more people are like, uh, my, whatever I'm doing is your business and you need to get, get with it and get with the program. And so that one's not been as much of an issue as it used to be, but a lot of times people look at what's going on privately as my private business and not the business of anybody else, especially people that are in the church. Challenge number three. This next one, I uh, was talking to my friend at work, Mr. Greenhall, who's the teacher I work with with the geometry and construction class, and we were just talking about this with him. And uh, he, he pointed this out, and I, this is a, an aspect that I've heard. I know this is a reality. Uh, church discipline is often viewed as if in opposition to love, like as if they're standing at opposite poles or opposite ends of the spectrum. It's either discipline or love. Let's be honest, that's not really true. When you discipline your children, it's usually not out of hate. It's usually motivated out of love. In fact, I'll be honest with you. There's times where, see, my boys aren't here, so I could say this. There's times where they needed to be disciplined, and I wasn't feeling the love that day. And I was like, ah, forget it. I don't even care. (laughs) But it's the love that would usually motivate me to do that correctly and to take the time to not just fly off the handle, but actually to take the time and say, Okay, let's sit down and let's talk about what happened. I'm going to have to discipline you, but I want you to understand why and what this is about and what this is for. That takes time and energy. And a lot of times we don't have the patience for it, but it was love that motivated the patience to do that with the kids. i got to be honest. I think love and discipline don't stand at opposite ends of the spectrum. I think that love and discipline hold the hands tightly. The Lord who loves us disciplines us as well. Discipline is not something that stands in opposition. I made my son memorize, both of them made him memorize Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Um, I love that verse. But this is how our culture views discipline. Like it's a negative thing. And it does feel negative when you're on the receiving end of discipline, when you have done what you ought not to do and you have to be disciplined for that behavior. It, is a, it feels negative. But our culture would say it's not loving to call out sin or to even hold a belief that, there's, that someone might even, what they want to do even is sin. And our culture mocks at that. But there's a reality that these things are in the scriptures and we have to address them. I think that any biblical church, any church that wants to be biblical and to take in the whole counsel of God, at some point, you're either going to have to rip out 1 Corinthians 5 or you're going to have to address this issue. Challenge number four. This one you may not have thought of. Uh, Church discipline is considered by many an overreach of church authority. In fact, even putting that up there, I was thinking about this this morning, I thought, even putting that up there, I wonder how many might read that and go, Those two words don't even go together, Matt. Church and authority. And I want to tell you, I think that's not accurate if you are to read through scriptures. There's there's clear places where authority is granted to the church. And I'm going to talk about one of those near the end of this. What does that mean? I mean, we're we're a people that want minimal authority, do we not? 
and we see any authority that overreaches into our life as an overreach of authority. And church has kind of gotten lumped into that. But I want to take, it, take some time to really talk about here's what the scriptures say to do, though. Okay? So now, before I dig into this, I want to just take that moment again and just say, I want to ask you to consider where you're at on the spectrum of this. Because I have no idea. Looking out, I wish that I had like little bubbles that would pop over your heads where I could see exactly what you're thinking and where you're at. That would make life so much easier. Like, I mean, if the bubbles were popping up and that time I was like, I'm totally with you, Matt. Preach it, brother. That'd be great. You know, I'm sure someone would be like, I don't know about this. You know, I, I'd love to at least know. Sometimes I can tell by facial expressions. You know, some of you have very obvious facial expressions. Sometimes, you know, when I'm, I'm talking and I see somebody like, mm, you know, it's like, okay, they're not liking that, but that could also be gas. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The passage I'm going to start off with, with the steps, I think is a guide. And I'm going to look at this passage as a guide, is Matthew chapter 18. Some of you are very familiar with this. You know exactly what I'm talking about, Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18 is not going to tell me why I do this. I'm going to go to a different passage for that. But I believe that Matthew 18 lays out a great guide for how I've attempted to at this church, how we've attempted to at this church, and how I've seen other churches that have do this well. They attempt to follow this these steps, this is a guide for how we do this particular thing. Something interesting about Matthew 18 that you may not have noticed before, Matthew 18 is snuggled, nestled nice and neatly between two other stories or parables. The one right before it is the parable of the, the, the leaving of the 99, the lost sheep. Leaving the 99 to go find the one. That's interesting. It's, it's not, right before is this gracious picture of what Christ does for the one who steps away from the flock. Right after it is the parable of the unforgiving steward where Jesus says you ought to forgive 70 times 7. I find that very interesting as well. In fact, I would urge you to think that this passage, Matthew 18, is nestled. It's right in between two gracious passages, not just the grace of our Savior, but the grace that we ought to show to each other. So it's, it's wrapped up. It's like a sandwich of grace, and right in the middle you see this particular passage. And I want to say that it's not a step away from that grace, but it's actually a way that grace can be expressed in a very real way. So let's take a look at Matthew 18. These four steps, I encourage you to, hopefully, I will try to do things to make you understand that when I talk about these things, I get no glee if I can use that word, no joy about when these things don't go the way I hoped they would go. This is, hard. This is a hard passage. Pass- this passage, one of the reasons where every once in a while I've thought, I don't want to do this anymore as a pastor. I, let me, I just want to go back to the seat, and I don't... This is one of those things. Being obedient to this has been one of the few things that throughout that and people who are, are, are sick or are dying... Those two things have been the hardest things for me as a pastor, is dealing with those two issues. So let's take a look at these steps, Matthew 18. I'm going to look at verse 15 first for the first one. And I've titled these steps just my own way. I didn't get these from anybody else. These aren't like the perfect titles at all. But it's the attitude or the feeling I get when I think about these steps, okay? The first one is this. It's personal. It's personal. You can't get away from the, the, the personal nature of what we're getting ready to talk about. And you'll see that as well in the verse itself. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So I say it's personal, not just because it's per- I mean, we're dealing with personal sin. This person has sinned against me. I haven't gone to somebody else. I haven't gone to this person yet. I'm going to go to this person. That's where the sin has happened. Though this is focused on when someone sins against you directly, I think this also lays out a great principled view, a guide to follow when there's any sin that maybe only you know about in another brother or sister in Christ in your congregation, where you go, I, this is something I know, nobody else knows about this. What do I do about this? You'll actually see that in 1 Corinthians 5, where it's not had been sinned directly against, but it's there's sin in the church that somebody knows about, and they're addressing those things. But this specifically is starting off, and I think this is a great place to start. If you see someone has sinned, and specifically they've sinned against you, what ought you to do? You ought to go to them. We also know from other passages that if you know you've sinned against somebody, you should go to them. So ideally, you ought to be meeting each other halfway between your two houses, right? (laughs) But that doesn't always work that way. But this is personal. Your brother. I think that don't, don't skip over that word. In fact, the very end of it, you see this. You've gained your brother. You've gained them back. I can't help but thinking about the 99 that he just talked about, how the other sheep right? When that sheep is brought back by Christ. There's a hope here of restoration. And so when I think of this, I have three, there's three purposes. In fact, uh, I've got two different uh, systematic theology books that I went, went back and rehashed through, and both of them laid out three purposes of church discipline. I was like, oh good, I had the same three. The first one is re- hope of restoration, reconciliation. It's not about humiliating. It's not about just pointing something out. There's a genuine hope of restoration. If we want to bring this person back, there's a hope of being restored. And so this key purpose, the first key purpose is restoration and reconciliation. So in the middle of the steps, I'm going to give you these key purposes. Consider James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's a hope of restoration. Galatians 6, 1, the first part says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And the spirit of gentleness is obviously something we ought to take upon ourselves in the process of doing this, a cautiousness, a gentleness. But I think as well, that thought there, don't skip that, to restore. You're hoping to restore. That's the goal. Did you know that the first nickname that Christianity had, before they were even called Christians, because that didn't happen until they got to Antioch, but when you read the book of Acts, you study Acts, there was a nickname that Christians had before they were called Christians. They were called the people of the way. That's what they were called. So if you read the first part of Acts, they're just called people of the way. And to restore someone to the way, I think, is a great way of looking at that. We're on the way to him. This is the way, and we're following after him. And some have wandered off, and our hope is to restore them to that. So first step, you and him alone. Notice there's that what counselors call and what other people call in Christian circles. We call this the circle of knowledge. How big is the circle of knowledge of this person's sin at this point? How many people are in this circle? Two, right? Not five. You haven't gone out and built your alliances. You ever do that when somebody wrongs you? 
You go out and build your alliance with other people so that you know you have people on your side before you go to that person, right? No, that can't be. In a church, in God's, with God's people, that ought to be right off the bat before you talk to anybody else. If there's something that someone has done that has offended you, that's hurt you, they've sinned against you, you ought to be going to them, right? All right. Circle of knowledge. Step two. Step one, it's personal. Step two, it's right. It says, but if he does not listen, verse 16, if he does not listen, it says to take one or two others along with you. But notice the point of the taking one or two others along with you. There's a point that involves how you're even viewing this. Notice it says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's a very biblical, ancient biblical terminology that's talking about establishing a charge by witnesses. Honestly, this often gets maybe potentially derailed the whole process because You've gone to this person, they've offended you, they're like, I'm not repenting over that. You go to this, uh, this other people, like, you're trying to follow this passage, you go to them, you present to them what's happening, and they go, uh, no, you're the one that's wrong, right? This is that point where you go, okay, maybe, I'm, maybe it's not them, maybe it's me, and so this, this going to get others is not just about building alliances, it's about clarifying, am I even right about this? Maybe I'm not right about this. And so this going to others to bring them along is not like now we can gang up on them. It's, it's about saying, well, this needs to be a step. Is this the right thing that we even ought to be doing? Should we be even be talking about this? Is this something this person even needs to repent of? Or am I seeing this whole thing wrong? It's a very important step in the process. Establishing the charge by evidence with witnesses. These are biblical terminology that dates way back. And this is often where it takes a detour. I would encourage you to come at it from that perspective, the perspective of I may not be seeing this correctly. Don't just sit and stew. You may need to say, am I even looking at this right? You go to some wise counsel in the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you go, am I even looking at this the right way? How am I to do this? Notice the circle of knowledge is still small. How many people at most do we have now? Four, right? Two or three others along with you, plus that person originally. Still small. Is there any gossiping going on about this? Is there any posting on Facebook? Right? Even, the, even those posts uh, where you don't say the name? <laughs> right? I've got this friend that's hurt me, and I'm struggling. Come on. Right? How about, how about, the, how about the prayer requests? Right? Where... Your goal isn't actually to pray for them. You're just getting out how this person's hurt you. I didn't say their name. And we know that most of us can figure out who it is. It's that one guy with the beard and the, you know, this, he's got the, you know, wait a minute. I know who he's talking about. I will pray for you. <laughs> it's so important. You know, I, I bring these things up, and these are these steps that we've played out. And I've, ha- I've had to walk through this with people at our church before, um, to be honest with you. I've also been, and if you ever want to know the details of it, uh, we've been on the receiving end of this as well. There's been times where I've been brought to this place myself. I myself am eternally grateful that there are people that are willing to do this. Not in a gossipy way, not in I'm going to attack you, but the hope of restoration. And I've had people have had to come to me humbly and say, I'm, you know, I'm coming to you. I love you, brother. There's, 
I see this, I see this. You're going, those are hard things, but I'm so grateful for them. Step number three, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Step three I titled, it's important. This is a big deal. It says in the first part of verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, so you've gone, it's been a stout, yeah, this is sin. Repentance needs to happen. If the person refuses, it says, tell it to the church. This is the second mention of this word in the Bible's timeline. The first mention of it is in Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to reference this in a little bit. Um, the, the first one is two, just two chapters earlier where Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church on the rock of what Peter had just said, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Jesus says, on that, I'm going to build my church. That word church means it's, it's ecclesia. It's talking about the called out people, called out citizens. And in this case, we're thinking of the citizens of heaven. And so Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this. This is the second mention, second use of this word where Jesus brings up the word church. Something very important is mentioned there in Matthew 16. I'm going to come back to you in a little bit. Notice that this is only, only to be done with a lack of repentance. When a person repents, there's no need to bring it before the church at this point. Right? If somebody repents, it doesn't go to this point. This is one of the ways that I've seen churches do it wrong. The person is repenting, they say, now we've got to get you up and parade you in front of everybody and have you confess this and then have you tell everybody about it. And it ends up being a humiliating aspect. Now, I will say that there's been times where uh, I've seen this done where the person, they wanted to do it because they knew what they had done had become known. And they wanted people to know that I am sorry. And so I've had people at this church have done that where they've said, I'd like to get up and say that I'm, I'm genuinely sorry. I want everybody to know because I know that they know. And so I want people to know. But notice it's only to be brought before the church, the congregation, the group of people together if there's a refusal to repent. The circle of knowledge now becomes larger. I've been at a church before that got to this point, and as the pastors brought it up, there was several people that got up and said, we didn't even know this was going on. Give us more time. We want an opportunity to reach out. And, I, and it's like that's exactly what the purpose of it is. It's for more of us to love on this person, more of us to pray for this person, more of us to genuinely call out to God, Lord, Lord they're, they're going down a way that's not the way, and Lord, we're, we're fearful of where this is going to take them, and God, we're, we're, we're afraid of what's going to happen in their lives if they continue down this path, and Lord, we want a chance, I, I know them, or maybe I've been there too, and, and maybe I might be, if I talk to them, maybe they'll hear like, oh, I've been there, I know where you're at. I know that there are churches that have done this very wrong, and I know that they've done it wrong for terrible reasons sometimes. I think there's churches that have tried to do this right that have still messed this up. This is such a challenging thing to do correctly. But as a pastor, I want you to know I, I cannot get away from what God calls me to do. If I were just to decide, well, I don't know if I can do this well, so I'm just going to not do it, what kind of pastor ought I to be? I ought to be removed from this pulpit immediately. If there's words and text of Scripture that I say, I don't want to do those things because they're hard. A second key purpose is revealed here, though. A second key purpose is to keep sin from spreading. 
My wife uses this phrase all the time in her counseling. She'll say, what happens teaches. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. One of, the, one of the challenges that I see facing the church today, I, I, I have lost count of how many people I know that are in my age group that have kids that are wandering into all different variations of sinful lifestyle. And there's something new, though, that I have not experienced in my life before that I would describe as an epidemic. They've wandered off, and they're living how, whatever lifestyle they want to live, but they've done this new thing that I've not seen before. They've brought Christianity with them. I can choose, for example, this lifestyle, and I'm fine with God. And I'm going to be honest with you. This, I'm stepped away from there. This is my, my thought and my opinion. I think that this is one of the results of the church as a whole not following through with declaring what is sin and what is right and what is wrong and, and that you can't, you can't do that. And I think not being firm and taking a stand on the truth of the Scripture has resulted in many people who are absolutely lost but think they're just fine. I'm going to come back to that thought one more time before I get to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage I'm going to talk about thoroughly here in just a minute. Um, verse 6 says this. Oh, I don't think I switched the scripture. Doggone it. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says this. Your boasting is not good. And this is Paul talking about a church. The Corinthian church was not doing these things. With a particular, there's an individual we're going to talk about in just a minute who is living in sexual sin, and the church was refusing to follow through with these things we're talking about. And Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Now, they were boasting in their graciousness. And Paul the apostle says, your boasting is not good. And then he throws in this little comment that if you read too fast, you'll miss it. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right in the context of what we ought to do with somebody is within living the sinful lifestyle. And we're not addressing it, rebuking it, calling it out for what it is, lovingly, carefully, but still doing those things. If we don't do that, Paul says an additional warning is a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. Which brings me to step four. A lot of people look at Matthew 18 that there's three steps. I think there's this, this last one ought to be divided, verse 17, into two separate steps. 17b says this. And notice each one of these has started off, if he refuses to listen, if he refuses to listen, do this. If he refuses to listen, do this. The final step of this process is this. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, lest you think that's harsh, consider who's saying this. Who's saying to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector? Who, who is this? Jesus, right? Come on, put your Sunday school answers on. I'm going to ask it again. Be like, you don't even have to be listening to anything I've said so far. You can get this one, okay? Who's talking right here? Jesus, Jesus right? Now, let's be honest. Jesus saying this is not harsh at all because how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Love. He loved them. This is not a harsh thing to say, treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Well, if you're going to treat them like a Gentile and tax collector, that doesn't cease to love. It's the most loving thing you can do, particularly because you're calling out 
where this person might actually be, what the real issue might actually be, and the approach that I need to take with them ought to be not just, hey, you're doing the wrong thing, but I'm concerned for your soul. It's not meant to be a shunning, right? So where you see them in public and they ask you something, you go, unshun, you know, no, reshun. <laughs> you know, we're not doing that kind of thing with them. Oh, no, can't talk to you, you're shunned. That's not what this is about. In fact, this brings up a whole another set of issues. In, in this situation, one of the ways that we try to practice this as this church, and by no means does this mean you can't come into our building. It's not like they would come and we go, like, get out. It's actually the opposite. We're like, so glad you came. Been praying that you wouldn't stop coming to hear, and to listen to the truth. Don't forget who's saying this when it, you read this. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Someone in need, just like you, of the very grace of God. This is more about a declaration, not about a shunning. It's a declaration. I want you to consider 1 John chapter 3 for just a moment. If there's any multiple places I could go into 1 John where we could talk about this, but let's just think about this for just a moment. 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 6, says, No one who abides in him, Christ, keeps on sinning. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to go back. The thing I love about 1 John, 1 John preaches itself. I almost don't need to, in fact, I'm, go, I'm, not, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to give you commentary. I'm just going to read it, okay? I may not be able to help myself and throw some commentary in there, but, I mean, for the most part, you can read it, and it's very plain what's being said. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident or obvious or clearly seen. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Let that sink in for just a moment. I said I wasn't going to do commentary, but let that sink in. A lot of people say, you can't know. I think it can be evident. According to this passage, I don't take the place of God, but I think that we can tell some things from this. Again, let me just read it for what it says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This brings me to the next three verses of Matthew 18 and some afterthoughts I want to share with you on church authority. Let me go back 
to Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. I mentioned this earlier, and I'm almost done. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter replied after Jesus had said, Who do people say that I am? And they told them some of the things. And he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what you just said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You may have wondered what this is about. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Keep that little phrase in mind because it's going to come up again in Matthew 18. And I think it helps us understand what these keys of the kingdom are all about. I think, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but I'd like to preface by a think. I think that part of what this keys of the kingdom is, in all of its messy glory, this, I think, is still true of God's church. We hold the keys to the kingdom. And let me put it this way, I, and I'm... This is just me saying this, but I, I wanted to put it up there, but I made it gray so you know I'm not like super bold in it. <laughs> but I do believe this to be true. There is no greater loving thing that a person can do than to tell them here and now that the gates of heaven may be locked against them on judgment day. Um, in my own experience when I was in high school, and I wish, I wish it had been done in bigger ways in my life, but the first moment that something like this happened to me, I was... Uh, going to a Christian school down the road, First Baptist here. And I was doing something I probably shouldn't have been done. And in fact, I'll admit it, I was something I should not have been doing. And my math teacher, irony, <laughs> pulled me outside in the hall and he said something to me that rang in my ears for years to come after that. His name was Mr. Kofer. He's passed since then. He said, Matt Harmless, he got me on the hall, pointed me, Matt Harmless, I don't even think you're a Christian. And I'm going to be honest with you. In my youthful mind, I thought, who are you to be saying that to me? I mean, I didn't say that out loud because I knew whatever happened here would go home. <laughs> and I knew my, you met my parents. You know. um, I couldn't get that phrase out of my head for many years. That phrase came back to me again in the first time I ever picked up a Bible, and I, I don't recommend this. I know you guys have heard me talk about this before, but I don't, I don't do the head like just open it up and read something thing. That's kind of what I did, and I read James 2.14. And James 2.14, it says, What is a prophet, my brother, if a man says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And that word that blew my brain out of my head where I was like, What? That faith? What's he talking about? And I'm going to be honest, those words of Mr. Kofer came back to me all those years later, and I thought, I could hear him still in my head going, I don't even think you're a Christian. That, Matt, that's the problem. You don't need willpower. You don't need this. You don't need this. You don't, it's not any of those things. That you, you don't need to know the rules better. I knew the rules. Maybe the real problem was I needed Jesus. I'd heard of him. I'd learned all kinds of things about him. But I can attest to you that if you would have asked me in high school, Matt Harmless, are you a Christian? I would have 
I could have put my hand in the Bible. I could have hooked me up to a lie detector, and I would have said, absolutely, yes. I believed 100% that I was. But I'm telling you, in hindsight, I know absolutely I was not. Only things I did good were things to keep myself out of trouble. I didn't see it that way. It, for me, it was about consequences of actions. It had nothing to do with pleasing my Savior. It had nothing to do with gratitude for salvation. Matthew chapter 18, if I go back to it. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, you hear that phrase, you see that phraseology again? It was spoken of about the keys of the kingdom. It comes back down here. As you tell someone, we're going to have to treat you as a Gentile and a tax collector, Jesus goes right to this statement. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, and I think that these next two verses we quote out of context all of the time. They have nothing to do with what we usually are using them for. Again, I say to you, if two, are, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is a solemn reality. The times where we've had to do this as a church here, it's a solemn reality that we've prayerfully considered. And honestly, what you're doing when you go to that person is, I'm wanting you to know right now that the, the, the issue is, from what I can tell, I cannot see inside of who you are. But from what I can tell, I don't believe that you're a Christian. And I, the call is then to be saved. Call upon Christ now. It's not about a shunning. It's about a realization that the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to the church. And we have a divine responsibility, I think, to help people see their eternal destiny. What a horrible thing to have somebody that's living on in sin and we never tell them, you ought to repent. What a terrible thing that is. I think I have it later down here. I think I have it at the very end, so I'm going to save it. But I know that that's a reality of people is that there's a possibility that you could think absolutely you're on your way to heaven and not be. And who are we to not humbly carefully, lovingly, try to tell people, I'm concerned for your soul. Key purpose number three. I don't think that I have it here. Did I already skip over it? I did. Key purpose number three is fulfilling our role in the purification of the bride of Christ. I think that's part of it. Helping see, helping others see, helping the Visible and the invisible church match up as closely as possible. I told you I was going to be done quickly, so I'm going to move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what I'm going to close with. And I'm not going to offer a whole lot of commentary or thoughts on this because I think, again, this is a passage that, that speaks for itself. There's a case in the city of Corinth, if you're confused about what's happening, there's a case in the city of Corinth where there's a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Okay. It was an incestuous relationship. It was above and beyond. It was a like what in the world is happening? And this church was refusing, even in that case, to confront and address it. Now I want you just to hear Paul's words, because there's gonna be some things in here that you go, number one, I think some of you are gonna hear these words and you go, I didn't know that was in the Bible. 
okay? There's going to be a few of you. I know for a fact that you're going to hear these words, and you go, I did not. So I wanted to encourage you, don't take my word for it. After I'm done, I'm going to read through it. After I'm done, you can go home, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, read through it yourself. Get every commentary you want and see what is this talking about. You'll find it's very straightforward. This is what was going on in this church. This is the why we've attempted to do this at this church and try to be, again, graciously and humbly be obedient to what God's word says to do. Because this church was not doing it, and Paul called them out on it. And I don't want to stand before, because I, in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, uh, obey and submit to your leaders that are set over you because they're keeping watch over your souls. I believe that is a reality. I believe in some way, shape, or form, I will be called to account how I've kept watch over your souls. And I can, I'll talk about church discipline like this, and some people like, I don't like it, I don't want it, but I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I, that's not going to bother me nearly as bad as if I get up on judgment day at the judgment seat of Christ and God says, you knew you should be doing this and you didn't. I'm seeking to avoid that conversation. <laughs> not, not somebody here getting mad at me. That breaks my heart, by the way. But there's a greater issue that I see down the road of answering to him for did I do what he said to do. 1 Corinthians 5. It is, oh, do I not have the, there you go. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I've had to ask myself, what does that even look like? What does that mean? For though absent in the body, Paul says, even though I'm not present with you right there, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Well, I thought we couldn't do that. When you are assembled, brought together, this Greek word for assembled here is the same word you get for synagogue. It's when the church is assembled. They've actually come together. And they can say, here we are, this is the church. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, oops, sorry, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But you see that purpose, that first purpose revealed. There's a hope of restoration. What is this delivering this person over to Satan? What is, his, what is Paul's hope in this? Do you see it right there? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Restoration is the goal. Take a detour off this for a second. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are, and Paul names two people, Hymenus, Alexander. And notice what he says he's done whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn, that's restoration, learn not to blaspheme. That's his hope. He says, your boasting is not good, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? There it is, keep that second purpose, keep sin from spreading. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Never thought you'd hear that in church. I want you guys to be a new lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, 
as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is the purification of the church, trying to get the, the physical representation of the church to match that invisible reality of the church as much as possible. He says, therefore, he said, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, so there's a previous letter that he wrote to Corinth that we don't have, um, 1st, 1st Corinthians, uh, not at all meaning, right, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And some of you are like, that sounds pretty good to me. But we get it backwards. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And I don't think this means I can't have a bite at the same time. I think what this means, and I'm telling you, I think, because this is a hard thing to understand. What, what does this look like? Because I just heard Jesus say, treat them like a tax collector and a, 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 a sinner, right? A Gentile. And I, he ate with them, right? I think that the thought here is that there's no more casual, like nothing's wrong, meals. At some point, it's going to come up with this person who has veered off of the faith, where at some point, if you want to, yeah, I'm more than happy. I'd love for, to talk to you. But at some point, it's going to be, I'm praying for you, that you'll repent. I know that's so foreign in our world, isn't it? It's just foreign. It's like not, it's almost unheard of. He says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. These are hard passages to wrap my brain around, how to do this. I think especially in our culture, because the moment I go down this route, again, what happens? People start seeing it as unloving or ungracious or unkind. And it requires a very real reset of how you view love and care and concern in eternity. I would ask you to go down this path with me. If you're here and you want to be a part of this assembly of people, to go down this path with me, because honestly, this starts not here, does it? It didn't start up here. The first step, in fact, the first step of what we would nickname church discipline, I ought to never hear about, right? It's going on out here, accountability with one another. Right, talking to each other. I see you doing this. I'm concerned for your soul. I, you know, you ought not to be. That's, you know. That I feel like what you're doing might be sin. It's wrong. I, I'm, I feel a need. God has called me to confront. You're going to stumble over your words. Okay, you're going to sound like me up here doing this right now. I don't. Um, but it, I think what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong, but it's, I think it's wrong. Humble attitude. Just coming to people and saying, just. And with the heart of says, I'm just trying to be obedient to this passage. I had a couple other verses you can look up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm not going to read them right now. 3.6 and 3.14 uh, both talk about um, this last step and what it looks like. I would encourage you to read those. 
I'm about out of time, but I did want to close with um, this passage from Matthew chapter 7 that I mentioned earlier. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and then such a scary word, on that day, right after the word day, that, that word right there, I wish it wasn't in there. I wish it said a few. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do mighty work, many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a scary, frightening reality that there are people that are going to stand before God on judgment day fully believing they're on their way in. And for Christ to say, depart from me, I never knew you. One of my hopes in accomplishing and trying to do this is that I don't want people to find out then because then there's no chance. There's not one more opportunity for repentance. But if I could say it here, by the power of the Spirit, I hope that they will hear that and recognize, I, I need to repent of my sin. I need to turn away from my sin. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask as I pray that God will help us as a group to do this in a way that makes Christ look great where he is glorified but also where people come to know Christ could I say for real that if there's anybody even in this room that does not know him yet but it is walking down a path thinking that they do honestly one of the hopes is that their sin will become apparent to somebody and somebody may be able to say to them what you're doing is wrong you ought to repent, and for them in that moment, not to be defensive, but to realize, my sin, that you're right, that they might become saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, again, for your word. I thank you that you have given us some guides to follow for these things. Lord, I know, I know that this has been done terribly. I know that we have not done it perfectly, but Lord, our hope is that in the midst of this, again, messy reality of church. As we seek to humbly be obedient to what your word says to do, my hope is that you will be glorified and that sinners will come to repentance and call upon you and be saved. That is our hope. I pray now that you would help us in whatever ways that we can, faulty though they may be, our hope is that you would use us for your glory and for their salvation. In Christ's name, amen.